Uh, if you have your Bibles, First Peter chapter number one, we're going to be starting a brand new series uh, that I've entitled "Living Hope." We're gonna we're gonna begin a study of the book of First Peter. Uh, it's a letter that was written by uh, the disciple of Jesus by the name of Peter, and uh, this is uh, one of the the great books of the Bible because one of the great themes of this book is hope. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that in life, life can be difficult. That hope is so necessary because difficulties bring about suffering in life. And so if you're alive today and, uh, and, you're, and you're going day to day, making decisions and uh, trying to do your very best at work and trying to lead your family and live together as a family and trying to have peace in, in your home and, uh, and at your work and in your life, you'll find that it's very difficult to do that because you live in a world that is full of suffering. You live in a world that is full of difficulties. And, and what do you do when living in a world full of suffering and difficulties? You live by the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Uh, First Peter is written to those that are going through trials and tribulations, through tragedies and calamities, and through relationships and rebellions. All of those things produce difficulties in our life, and difficulties always produce suffering. Now, suffering is in this world because that's a natural result of sin. The moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they brought suffering into this world. In fact, before that, uh, suffering was not known. Uh, before that, the difficulties were, were not around. But the moment that sin entered into the world, so did difficulties and sufferings and the need for hope. That's why way back in Genesis chapter number three, when we are told of Adam and Eve's sin, right after that, when God meets with them, he begins to speak to them about a hope, a brighter future, a, a hope that will take away the suffering and the penalty uh, of sin, the presence of sin and the power of sin. From the very beginning, God begins to speak about hope and and in this book of 1 Peter, this, this, is, this is the one truth that Peter really begins to expound and, and hold on to. Uh, it, it's a truth that really led him through much of his life because if there's anyone that knows about suffering, it was Peter. Now, as we study this book, it's going to take several weeks, but we're going we're to start in, in verse 1 of, of chapter 1, and we're going to go verse by verse all the way through chapter number 5 of 1 Peter I think what you're going to find is that this book has a, has a lot to say about hope. It has a lot to say uh, about faith. It has a lot to say about suffering. And it's my prayer that as we study this book together, that we will be able to live by the hope that we have been given. Peter's challenge to the people that he's writing is live by this hope. And so let's jump into this, uh, this, this book, uh, starting in verse number one. Notice what it says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. As we get into the, uh, into the book, into this very first book, uh, or very first uh, letter, I, I want you to notice the very first word. Just as a matter of introduction, notice the author of the letter. It starts with Peter. Uh, the, the beginning of this letter just states, of course, the author's name, but there's so much in a name, right? Uh, the name of someone can tell us so much. If, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that it's an allegorical story, right? And, and all the names in that story mean something, right? You have Mr. Worldly, you have Christian, you have Hopeful, you have Faithful. Uh, you have all of these names of different characters in the story, but their names portray who they are. Now, I want you to notice this name, Peter. Uh, Peter was a man that was a changed man. You see, when he was born, his name wasn't Peter. In fact, his given name was the name Simon. And it wouldn't be till about three decades later that his name would change from Simon to Peter. But as Simon, he was a man that was pretty quick-tempered. He was, he was someone with a strong personality. He was a, a natural leader. People, people liked to follow him. In fact, of, of his friends, he was probably the leader. He hung out with Andrew, his younger brother, and James and John, who were in the same town, and they, they fished together. They had a company uh, together of fishing, and and uh, Peter was, was probably the one that led them. Uh, anytime you read about Peter, uh, you'll have to read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, what are the Gospels of the New Testament? They'll tell you a lot about Peter. And this is where we find that he was a, a, a person that can be very impulsive at times. Um, many times he could speak and then think about what he just said instead of thinking about what to say and then saying it. Uh, sometimes he would do things without uh, really thinking them through. Uh, Peter was just that kind of person, just a, a, a outspoken and very forceful person in his speech. But then one day he met Jesus and his life began to change. He came into a relationship with Jesus, became a follower of Jesus, and Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. Now the word Peter, that, that name uh, can uh, mean a rock, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Aramaic, it's Cephas. Uh, and so if you see the word Cephas in your New Testament when you're reading, that's the Aramaic translation of Peter. Peter is the Greek. And uh, some have translated it as rock, others as a pebble. Uh, but either way, Jesus saw in him uh, someone that was different than he was before. And Jesus changes his name and begins to work on his character. And uh, as you read through the Gospels, you see that Peter's this brash, overconfident young man. He was probably, I don't know, maybe in his mid-20s to late 20s at this time. And, uh, and you see that he's, he's this kind of uh, young man that kind of thinks he knows everything and how the world works. And, and when Jesus begins to work in his life, he begins to change. By the time he's writing this letter of 1 Peter, he's not the same brash, overconfident young man anymore. In fact, you'll find that he's someone that's tender and loving and humble. He's gone through a lot of experiences in his life. He's had a lot of highs and a lot of lows. I mean, he was one of the few disciples that saw Jesus transfigured. Um, 
on the mount. He was one of the few disciples that was with Jesus the moment that Jesus said to this little girl, get up and walk, and resurrected her from the dead. He was one of the few that um, saw Jesus do some incredible things. He was the only one of the disciples to ever jump out of the boat and walk on water. I know I've heard a lot of messages on the lack of Peter's faith as he was walking towards Jesus. And it's true, there was a lack of faith at the very end. But he had great faith to just jump out of the boat. The other 11 were just sitting there watching. But we we see through all of these experiences some, some great highs. But you also see some great lows in his life. He was a man that um, denied Jesus in his most needful hour. He didn't just deny him once, he denied him three times. We find that Peter was one that uh, at one point said, hey, I'll never leave you, Jesus. And then when the soldiers came, he ran away just like everybody else. We see that there were some pretty low lows in Peter's life. And so the the man that is writing this letter is a changed man. Those experiences have shaped him and changed him. Through those experiences of life, when you get to the book of Acts, after Jesus has resurrected, it is Peter that becomes the leader of that church. He begins to preach boldly. He was a man that had powerful preaching. In fact, in one day, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved as a result of his preaching. You can read that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. You, you, you see the boldness of Peter. And, and let me just say, maybe you're like me, but I love Peter. Because he's someone that I feel like I can identify a lot of times with. I can look back at my life and, and I can see the highs and the lows. I can see times where I've been way overconfident and way too brash And where God's had to humble me. I can think of times where I've walked with Christ. Where I've felt closer than I've ever felt with him. There's been times in my life where I see that God has molded the way I think. And molded my character. Where he's used his word to to begin to shape me. And the Bible says that God's word is like a mirror. It gives us an uh, a perfect reflection of who we are. And, and, uh, and, and though we study the life of Peter and we can say, this is the kind of person Peter was, we can kind of look at ourselves through the lens of the Bible and see who we are. I think many times we could probably identify with, with Peter. But the word of God isn't just a mirror to reflect us. It's a, it's a book of promises to shape us. It's a book of, of truth that, that allows us to be able to change what we were. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this all the time. You go to Ephesians chapter 2, he, he reminds, remember you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins? You remember? Do you remember in, uh, to the Thessalonians, he tells them, do you remember when y'all were idol worshipers and pagans and didn't go to church and, 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 you, and, and, and you didn't live right and you didn't honor God with your life? But now, that ain't who you are anymore. You know, I was, I was so excited and filled with joy when I, I heard about the decisions that were made at camp from our teenagers. And by the way, we're going we're gonna to be having baptisms in this next month of August, the last Sunday. And, 
I know many of them that, that put their faith in Christ need to take that next step and identify publicly with him through baptism. But I love hearing the decisions that were made because it's a decision that will change your life. It'll, it'll take you to be more Christ-like. You'll, you have a relationship with God that gives you the peace of God, and now it changes you. You know, the, the, the beautiful thing about the Christian life is the fact that we're always changing. That's why the Christian life's not really boring. Uh, people that get bored in the Christian life, it's because they've, they've stopped allowing God to mold them, to change them. People that get bored in the Christian life is because they've, they've stopped looking at the mirror of the word of God and stopped believing the promises of the word of God. And let me tell you, when the word of God and Christianity becomes religious to you and just another religion, then you do lose your peace. And you, you, you do lose what is that dynamic work of God in your life. Uh, we find that the author of this letter, his name's Peter. But he was a man that was changed. Brash and young and outspoken to humble and loving and tender. But not only was he a changed man, he was a charged man. Notice he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say a charged man, I don't, I don't believe he was a, you know, a walking battery. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a man with a charge in his life. You see... He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the term apostle was not given to everyone in the church. It was only given to those that were with Jesus in his earthly ministry and were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Those were the requirements to be an apostle. So if you hear somebody say, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ today, then you know they're, they're lying. Uh, the apostles died in that first century. Those were the last ones to see the resurrected Christ physically. We believe in the resurrected Christ, but we've not seen him. So apostles had the requirement of being eyewitnesses of Jesus. That's why Paul, when he's defending his apostleship, he says, I saw the resurrected Christ. When I was on the way to Damascus, he literally appeared to me. Okay. If you look in Acts chapter 1, in fact, verse 21, 22, I just, I put those verses in there so you know that's, that's what the, the apostles themselves defined as apostleship. They were saying someone that was walking with Jesus and was a witness with us of his resurrection, that was an apostle. But an apostle was more than just a title. An apostle was someone with authority. Someone that had a charge to go and reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone that was to be a leader in the church. And so we find that this charge was something that Peter was given and something that he took very seriously. When he writes an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's not doing filler words. You high schoolers know what I talk about when I say filler words, right? When there's a three-page paper due, you're just kind of making the sentence as long as possible, right? You're just trying to fill the page with words, but... Peter doesn't do that when he's writing his letter here. He's reminding his readers of the charge that he has as an apostle. He's just reminding you, listen, there's some authority that I've been given by God as a leader of the church that you ought to listen to, that you ought to follow in your life. 
this charge was given to him. Uh, you can see in John chapter 21. If you, if you have your notes there, you'll see it. John chapter 21. This is after Jesus has already resurrected from the dead. And, and um, Peter was a little bit discouraged. Uh, he knew that Jesus was resurrected, but really didn't know what to do next. And so he told uh, the disciples, hey, I'm going fishing. Anybody want to go? And some of the disciples go with him. And Jesus appears to them on the coast. And he calls to them. And, uh, and Peter goes, and, and while they're there, Jesus had already started to cook some fish by a fire, and the, and the disciples get there, and he begins to talk to Peter kind of exclusively there. Not talking to the whole group, he just begins to talk to Peter, and there in verse number 15, as, as they're eating breakfast, after breakfast, it says, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And then a second time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. He says, then take care of my sheep. And then a third time, he asked Simon, son of John, do you love me? And by this time, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus then said, then feed my sheep. You see the charge that was given to Peter and as a good shepherd in this letter, you're going to find him feeding and caring. You're going to see as he's writing to, to this audience, he's, he's writing to them about the love that he has for them, the charge of that. Now, although there are no apostles alive today, the charge of Jesus still rests upon us. We're not apostles today. We don't have that same authority, but we do have a commission that has been given to us. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus commissioned his followers to go. So as you're reading this letter, understand this about the author. Number one, he's a changed man. Number two, he's a man with a charge. And I say we ought to be challenged just by reading that first phrase, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because it speaks to us. If we identify as Peter and we can say, man, I've had some of those spiritual highs and some of those spiritual lows, and I've had some of those experiences in my life, then you know the change that Jesus has brought. And if you have been changed, I want to remind you that that change comes with a commission. Something that Jesus commissions you to as he changes you. We find that this is the author of the letter that we'll be studying, but what about the audience of the letter? Who's he writing to? You notice that Peter didn't just uh, say to whom it may concern. Uh, He didn't write to whoever reads this. He's got a specific audience in mind that he's writing to. And I want you to notice that he's writing to chosen pilgrims. He writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout. Now, that word strangers is the Greek word parapidemus, which means resident foreigner or pilgrim. It means someone that's living in a country, but that's not from that country. Someone that is a foreigner, but living in a 
country temporarily. A, a pilgrim is someone that is passing through, not someone that's looking to get their citizenship to live there permanently, just being there temporarily. Now, notice that he says these pilgrims that are scattered. Uh, the word scattered is the word diaspora, and that means just gone out. There are a lot of reasons why the people he's writing to have been scattered, some because of persecution, some because of economic hardships. They just got to look for better jobs and they're, they're moving out. And, and others were just searching for a better place to live. But what they all have in common is that they're Christians. They're all pilgrims. Now, what makes them pilgrims is not their nationalities. It's not because they were Jewish and living in a different country or because they were Gentiles that were maybe from uh, uh, Greece or Rome and living in a different province. No. They weren't strangers because of that. They were pilgrims because of who their family is. Now, the Bible talks about two families. There's only two families in this world, the family of God and the family of the devil. Now, if you are not in Christ, if you have not been born again, if you've never received Jesus as your personal savior, the Bible says that you're in the family of the devil. You say, man, pastor, that's really harsh. It is really harsh, but it's a reality. Uh, notice that uh, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking to uh, the, the Pharisees, they are criticizing Jesus. They are not believing in who Jesus is and what he declares himself to be. And here's what he tells them. He says, for you are the children of your father, the devil. You love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The first family is the family of the devil. And those that reject the truth and those that hate the truth and those that have never believed on the truth are in this family. You say, well, well, what is truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Believing in Jesus makes you part of his family. Rejecting Jesus makes you part of the family of the devil. So when Peter is writing here to these pilgrims, he's not talking about just people that don't have the nationality of that country where they're living. The people that are not from Pontus or Cappadocia or Bithynia. He's not talking about those that have citizenship there and those that don't have citizenship there. He's talking about those that are a family of God. This world is not your home. We are just pilgrims, temporary residents here. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Now, I want you to notice in verse number two, he says, elect. Now that word elect, I know in our Bible it happens not till verse number two, but you know that's an adjective, that word. And the adjective is describing strangers. So maybe some translations might have elect strangers. The word elect means chosen. That's why when you're looking at the audience, it's a chosen pilgrims. Now, the word chosen doesn't just mean like, you know, when you're picking teams to play sports and you're like, hey, you're on my team, just, just choosing someone to be on your team. The word chosen has the idea of choosing with a personal relationship. Like I'm choosing you because I know you, because I love you, because we, we have a personal relationship. 
I want you to think about that because there's two Greek words for choosing. Oida is like choosing like just randomly. Yeah, there you go. You, you can come be over here. But gnosko is a choice of I, I know you. I have a deep relationship with you. And Jesus says, you that are in me, you're a pilgrim in this world. This world's not your home. You're living here temporarily. But I want to remind you that I've chosen you. That I love you. That, that you are someone special to me. Someone that has my loving favor. Now that loving favor, if you continue reading in verse number two, comes by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us. He's the one that helps us understand that we're sinners. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we would never really understand our own condition. But the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts to make us see this is who you are. This is the truth. The Bible says uh, in, in John 14 that the Holy Spirit convicts us of truth. Now, what you do with that conviction is up to you. There are some that because they're convicted will react in anger and reject it. If you read in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, really in the whole book of Acts, many that heard Peter's preaching... It says they were pricked in their heart. In other words, they, they were convicted about what he was saying. But instead of saying, you know what? You're right. I am a sinner. You know what? You're right. I'm in the family of the devil. I, I don't want to be in this family. And I don't want to live a way that's displeasing to God. And, and I need a savior. I need the forgiveness. Instead of reacting that way, you'll find that they begin to beat them and persecute them. With Stephen, they literally began to bite him and stone him. I say that because this is who Peter's writing to. Foreigners that have God's loving favor in their life. You, you who have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then notice that they are chosen for a purpose. They're chosen pilgrims because they're not of this world, John 17. But they are chosen for a purpose. It says unto obedience. God's given you his loving favor. Why? Peter says, so that you can obey. So that you can obey. But not just obey, but that you can obey and be pure. It says, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That phrase, sprinkled of the blood of Jesus Christ, has three purposes. Now, I didn't put these in your notes. You can just write them in really quick. Number one, that of being sprinkled of the blood has the idea of the atonement of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed, it was shed to give you and me the forgiveness of sins. The, the blood of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice bulls and goats and, and sometimes doves, that would just cover sin. But it could not forgive sin. It would just cover your sin. 
And that's why every year they had a day, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go into the temple and they would have to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And then God, the Bible says, would cover the sin of the nation of Israel for a year. And they did that year after year after year. But when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, his blood was not the same as goats and bulls. His blood had the power to forgive you of your sin. To do away with the sin. To to, to once and for all deal with the sin problem. So when Peter is saying, here's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to you that are living in this world, but you're not of this world. To have God's loving favor in your life, not because you're so special, but because he loves you. Because he chose you. He has a relationship with you because he's forgiven you. There's a second reason for the sprinkling of the blood, and that is the idea of sanctifying. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 7 and 8, there it's in your notes. After they've been read the the covenant, the, the, the Ten Commandments and the commandments of God, Moses told the people, these are the commandments of God. Here's the book of the covenant. And he read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. And then it says, and Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. In other words, hey, you're purified now to live and obey what you've been given. I believe Peter had probably that in mind as well. Not only the fact that he'd been forgiven and he's writing to people that have been forgiven, but he's writing to people that had been purified, sanctified, set apart. The word sanctified means set apart. And in the Old Testament, when the people read the covenant, they were sprinkled and they were set apart. Then I want to notice a, a third reason, and that is, The idea of purifying, not just sanctifying of being set apart, but being cleansed. The word purify means to be clean or cleansed. And now in Leviticus chapter 14, the sprinkling of blood was sprinkled on people that were being cleansed of leprosy. Leprosy was a mortal disease. It was, it would, it would kill you just very slowly. Slowly your, your fingers would begin to fall off and rot Uh, Parts of your face, wood, and all over your body. You literally were just decaying alive. That's what leprosy did. And if you were going to be cleansed from that and God miraculously cleansed you, you would had to go to the priest. The priest would check you and say, oh, you are cleansed. The leprosy is going away. And then they would sprinkle you to signify that you'd been cleansed. You'd been purified. You know, I, I believe that Peter's, Got this in mind as well. Man, listen, I'm writing to people that are living in a world that they're not part of this world. They have the loving favor of God in their life, not because they're special, but because God just loves you with that kind of love and he's forgiven you and he's set you apart and he's purified you. Peter says, this is who I'm writing to. You know, the Christians in Peter's day as well as Christians in our day are to be reminded That we're chosen for a purpose. Because we're forgiven. If you have Jesus in your life and you have an active relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. May I remind you that you've been forgiven. And you've been sanctified by the blood and you've been purified by his blood. 
Say, he's not just throwing word fillers in this letter. He's saying, listen, Peter, that's who I am. I've been a changed man. I'm an apostle. I have a charge that God's been given to me. And I'm writing to people that are in this world, but not of this world, who have been chosen by God, who have been forgiven, and who have been sanctified and purified. Why? To obey. Now, what is the aim of this letter? You see this at the end of verse number two, the aim of the letter, and it is grace and peace. At the end of this verse number two, he's just, he's not just throwing words out there like, hey, have a good day. Hope you're doing well. Hope this letter finds you well. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's much more intentional with that. It's not as benign and colorless as just saying, hope you're doing well. What he's sharing is, this is the aim for all of what I've said before. Of why God has changed you and given you the charge he has. Of of who you really are in this world. And what God has really done for you. It's for this. To experience all of grace. Uh, grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. In other words, it's God giving you what you don't deserve. I've heard many a, a person say that as a Christian, man, um, what I deserve according to the Bible is hell and death. If you, if you follow Dave Ramsey, he's a, a financial you know, uh, advisor and, and he's a Christian. And on his radio show, when they call, they, they always say, hey, uh, Dave, how are you doing? And he always answers, better than I deserve. I think that's a great response to be reminded uh, that the grace of God in our life is better than what we deserve. We do not deserve the grace of God. And what, what Peter is, is just reminding those that he's writing to is that God has given us so much that we don't deserve. He's given us blessings and provisions and strength and power, his presence. And he's given, he's given us so much. In this letter, we're going to learn that it's grace that gives us the hope that we have. I told you the big theme of this letter is hope, but where does that hope come from? From the grace of God. From you experiencing more and more of God's grace. So, if you're in need of grace, then I want to encourage you to keep coming every week as we study this book because it's going to, Peter's going to, to, to share his experiences of God's grace in his life. As someone that's had a lot of experiences with God, he wants to say, listen, let me just write to you a little bit about the grace that I received. In fact, in the second letter that he'll write in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the last verse of that letter says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter was all about that, grace, grace, grace. To experience all of grace, but then he includes peace. The aim of this letter is not only to experience all of grace in our life, but have peace in life. The result of God's grace working in our life is always peace. In fact, you can never truly have the peace of God without the grace of God. Grace is what saves us. Grace is what gives us peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we're jumping into a new letter, 1 Peter. As just a matter of introduction, just a few takeaways. Number one, the fact that we've been changed. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's been changed and he's been charged. And let me just say, if you are in Christ, you have a new name and a new destination in life. And this world has gone from being your home to just being a foreign country in a foreign place. Our home is a place called heaven, not this world. So we make our life not building for what we can get in this world, but for the one that is to come. We've been changed by the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. We've been charged to do something different in this world. Let me give you a second thought, and that is who we are in Christ. We're chosen. We've been forgiven. We've been set apart for a different work, a special work. And we've been purified by the blood of Christ. To what end with all of this? To experience all that God's grace has for us. And to have the peace of God in our life. This morning, I know we're barely in verse 1 and 2. But I want to encourage you by these two verses as you're reading. Just notice who we are and who we've been. Notice what God wants for our life. This is what Peter is saying. Listen, this is the aim. I want to encourage you that your life, as well as mine, would be to live and experience all that grace has to offer. and To live our life in peace, knowing who we are and who we've been made to be through Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the life of Peter. I know he was a man that before he knew you was a different kind of man. Oh, but the day that he became a follower, how everything changed. His destination and his home changed, but then also his character began to change. You began to work and mold him in his life to be something different. And Father, we can look back in our life just like Peter and say, man, the moment that you came in to our life, how things changed. Our destination changed. Our family changed. Our purpose in this world changed. And Father, you've given us a new purpose and a new charge. I pray that we would live according to this new purpose. That now being forgiven and set apart and cleansed by your spirit, that we would live unto obedience so that we might experience all that your grace has to offer and that we might live in the peace of God. Help us not only to be challenged today by these truths, but to apply them in our life. Make this a a week in which we don't live as people that are making a home in this world, but just passing through it. And help us to live for the world that is to come. That as pilgrims, we don't put all of our focus and all of our energy in, in what will not last. 
but rather in what is eternal. Be with us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.